Hello and welcome to the Paddock Bees podcast. I'm Tim Nash, a beekeeper always wanting to learn more and also the man behind the Paddock Bees account on Instagram. This is a podcast for those who've fallen into the beekeeping trap and want to learn a little bit more from the beekeeping community. Each week, we'll mix up the guests and provide some insights into the world of beekeeping. So sit tight and we'll soon make a start. Hi everyone, thanks for joining this episode of the Paddock Bees podcast with Happy Day Honey. As you will know, this podcast has gone on the back burner slightly with the new arrival to the family. So what you need to do, you need to cast your mind back to May. You need to remember those wet days where we all thought that the spring was going to be a write-off. And for a few of you, that may well have been the case. But Paul, thanks again for joining for this episode. Sorry it's taken a while to get online. But everyone else, sit tight because we're going to talk about bee migrations, pollen harvesting along with much more so let's crack on paul welcome to the podcast thanks for joining thanks for having me it's a pleasure to be here another episode following the same format as we've done before let's go back to the beginning when did you start beekeeping and what got you initially interested in keeping bees um, if if you want to go to the very beginning, um, some of my earliest memories of being around bees and bee farming. My my father was a bee farmer, so um, it's something I've grown up with, um, helping out as a kid um, and uh, and being around it at a young age. But it it wasn't always something I actually wanted to get into. In, in fact, it was probably one of the last things I ever wanted to do. But um, eventually, I got drawn into it and and started to enjoy it and love it actually. So. So it's in the blood. You could say that, yeah. <laughs> so when did you start taking it on for yourself then and becoming a bee farmer? So um, for myself, I've been doing it about 12 years. Um, I worked for my father a couple of years before that in a partnership, um, but we went our separate ways, mainly due to a, a disease issue we had. Um, we had quite a big outbreak of EFB not long after I came into the partnership. And I very much wanted to go a different route in tackling that to my father. So it, it kind of led to, to us, us separating in a way. Um, we both got over the disease after a few years. Um, my dad took the, the route of um, destroying colonies. Um, the inspectors came in and, and advised us and, and did a lot of the work for us. They really helped us. But um, my dad very much getting on in his age and wanting to start to wrap things up, just decided to start destroying colonies to deal with the EFB. And I very much wanted to try and salvage them and chuck swarm and save what I could. But there was quite an expense to that and a lot of work and it, it took several years. Um, uh, but but that, that was mainly what separated us. Um, but it's also what gave me a sort of kickstart of doing things on my own and setting up my own bee farming business. EFB, for those who might not know, European fowl brood, there's also American fowl brood, two notifiable diseases. So if any beekeeper becomes aware of them or suspects them in, in their colonies, then also we need to engage the um, regional bee inspectors and, and let them know. Is, have you come across European fowl brood much since then? 
I well, funnily enough, through through that interaction with the inspectors, who, as you said, it's very important if you suspect foul brood to to contact your local inspector. It is their job to to try and manage this disease. Um, but it was through the interaction with them that I actually ended up um, as a, as a bee inspector myself for Defra. So. Um, yeah, I have seen quite a bit of it in the years I did that job, and and obviously we saw quite a bit of it in in my own operation back then. So, um, it, it's certainly one of the things that you you kind of need to see it in person to really be able to recognise it. You know, it's um, there's a lot of other things that can look similar to um, European fowl brood, but I feel like once you've seen it in person and seen it often, it's it's unmistakable. And uh, yeah. And what would you say the telltale signs or signs of that are? Because people are going into their colonies now, given the weather we've had, there might be a few people who haven't been able to do full thorough inspections. They've just been making sure that there's brood in all stages and the queen's still laying and they're going to be doing a disease inspection. What would your advice be to keep an eye out for there? Well, I always used to advise people to, to not look for the diseases themselves because there are dozens of different types of brood diseases, you know. Um, but I, I would always advise people to get to really be able to identify what healthy brood looks like, what healthy, nice, pearly white, you know, um, segmented brood looks like. And if you can identify what's healthy, you can start to narrow down, narrow down what's not healthy and you know, it's okay if you can't figure out exactly because, you know, there are other beekeepers that maybe know a bit more or bee inspectors and, you know, lots, lots of literature and books and all sorts of things to help you try and figure these things out. But I think it all starts with knowing what healthy is, you know. That comes back to the point about having those two colonies again, something that's come up quite often, obviously, without having two colonies, kind of those different points of references, it, it's always uh-huh. going to be hard to really know what's right, what's wrong, um, and it's just giving yourself the exposure and actually just going and looking at other people's bees and getting that hands-on experience and looking into colonies to to understand that. I've got a pretty graphic book next to me, which goes through, it's got a whole load, load of pictures of different diseases. It, it's not a pleasant one to look through. I don't know why I keep it there, but every now and then I just leaf through it just to know, okay, if, if, I, if it doesn't look like normal brood, what might it be? Absolutely. And these books, they're, they're good reference points as well, you know. Um, yeah, they're, they're good to have about and, um, and yeah. 12 years on your own then, what's your current colony count? Um, I, I went into winter with about 250 and I'm 232 now, I think, something like that. We, we lost a few over winter, but not, not too bad losses, um, just below 10%, which I'm quite happy with. Um, yeah. I think that firmly puts you on the leaderboard. So if, if you think that you might be able to topple Paul, get in contact with me because we want to have a chat with you. And how have you predominantly got there? Obviously, there's a lot of talk about package bees in the news or do you tend to just do splits and you and get your own uh, bees up to in those colonies? I So obviously I had a, a good start. I, I ended up chuck swarming a lot of my father's bees, which he was very kind enough to then pass on to me and let me just deal with, and they were my own. So I started off with, I think, around 70-odd hives. So it's, it was a good head start. And then it was through splitting and, and yes, mostly splitting. I bought in a lot of queens to, to save a bit of time. You know, it, it reduced the amount of failures that I could have had from raising my own queens. And... I think it allowed me to increase a bit quicker having bought in um, 
sort of queens that I could rely on and it would it would save that waiting for my own queens to get mated and you know um so that saved me a bit of time um but yeah it takes to start from scratch I've not had much experience in and it can be difficult from what I understand you know the first sort of 50 could take forever but I feel like once you've got a good number it it, it just snowballs then because the bees just multiply naturally and, and you, you take advantage of that. But, but the, I think the, the first 50 is probably the biggest hurdle. And, and I guess I was fortunate to, to have a head start and uh, in taking on my dad's bees. So I've got three and I feel as though they're snowballing. I've, I've, <laughs> I've, seen, I've split one twice already and the other ones have all been split. And I'm thinking, oh, I need to get, a, get another roof just to have some spare equipment at the apiary. Yeah, pe- people uh, people think you know it's all about creating bees and multiplying and getting as many hives as you can. But actually, I think the the real job is keeping bees in boxes and maintaining a number. That's that's the hardest work. Sure is. I went with a plan on Saturday. Tell you what, that plan that that went out the window within the first five minutes. And what sort of hives have you got? Where do you keep your colonies? Uh, so I, I run nationals, nationals with commercial supers. Um, that's mainly for historic reasons in that that's what my father used but also um due to us moving bees quite a lot it, it's probably one of the easiest hives to transport um and, and these are all wooden hives so they're a lot more durable and, and stand up to moving uh, to migration more than poly hives would um although the, the bees would do better in poly hives they're just they just, yeah, they don't, they don't hold up well to being moved about a lot and knocked and, you know, ratchet strapped and, yeah, they're just not quite as durable as wooden hives. You referenced migration there. So where mm-hmm. do you keep your bees? So uh, we move our bees quite a lot. I, I always like to think more than most other beekeepers ever would as well. I mean, we, we start the year um, with pollination down in Kent. We, we take bees to cherries in very early April. So, you know, whereas most people wouldn't even look at a hive until mid-April, um, we've had to look at them and inspect them and make sure they've got enough food and um, have got a, a viable queen um, and equalise them so they're not going to build up out of control and swarm on us down in the orchards. We've had to do a lot of work in, in March. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're very dependent on weather in March it's it's if there's one good day we've got to get a lot of work done in that one day in March because uh, you know it's very early in the season but yeah the first move is down to cherries in Kent uh, we take about 60 hives to the cherries then a few weeks later in mid-April uh, we go to apples in Kent again uh, about 100 hives go to the apples uh, and then a little bit later in April again we take some to Surrey to blueberries so uh, that's sort of our first few moves of the year. Keeping them south nice and warm. It, it does get them a, a head start. It, it's, it's nearly like transporting them a few weeks into the future. You know, it's, um, yeah, they're going down to a warmer climate and, and an abundance of pollen and nectar, which, you know, up here in early March in Lincolnshire, it's, uh, sorry, early April in Lincolnshire, it's usually still very cold. The Orsted Rape's not out yet. It's, uh, yeah, it really does give them a, a boost going down south sometimes. A lot of people will be familiar with the pollination services for almonds in California and the huge migrations over there. What other crops would bees typically be taken to in the UK? We've mentioned cherries, apples, blueberries. Where else would you take them? 
Well, soft fruit and top fruit are the main paid pollination work. You know, when, when you think of America, that's that's sort of big business and, and a lot of money for bee farmers moving to almonds. But so, so our top fruits is sort of the main comparison to that. But a lot of field crops, you know, a lot of oilseed rape even, you know, that, that does require pollination. Um, field beans, um, we pollinate a lot of field beans around Lincolnshire, Um Mustard, even we take some bees down to South Lincolnshire. That's uh, mustard grown for Coleman's. That's that's pollination work down there. But this is all unpaid. This is this is sort of mutual benefit where we're getting honey and the farmers getting pollination, basically. Um, um, borage as well. That's that's a fantastic crop later in the summer that that really does require. Well, it doesn't require, but it, it gives gives a massive boost to the yields having uh, having bees on it. Uh, 20 to 30 percent increase in yield to the farm which is is significant really you know and you sell some of this honey as a single source so you, mm-hmm. you've got a pure borage honey how would you know that that's pure borage is there other forage around that they could be working on so because of how how we operate and how much we're moving our hives. We, we, we sort of crop our honey before every move, which it sort of gives the bees a fresh start, fresh supers on each crop. So it does reduce um, the amount of sort of other honeys that could be in, 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 our, in our supers. So that's, that's a good start in, in that we're mainly getting honey from where the bees are at that specific time. Uh, and then the bees get moved away um, afterwards. So, so that's, that reduces a lot of the, uh, the the crossover with other crops, but uh, we, we've had honey tested in the past uh, uh, pollen analysis, which which can help you with certain crops. But so the borage, for instance, um, it's very difficult to identify pollen in borage honey. Um, whereas uh, there are companies now that can test um, for DNA, so that that certainly helps uh, analyze honeys. But a lot of the time. Over the years, you can you can see in in the colour, in the taste. Uh, it, it sometimes it's it's obvious, you know, which honey is which. And uh, if I'm ever not sure, I don't sell it as a pure borage. For instance, if it's not quite as light as a pure borage should be, I'll call it a borage blend. Or if that flavour's not there, it, again, it'll be a borage blend. So um, same with the heather, uh, the ling heather. It's very a very distinctive honey and it, it, it's it's obvious some years when the bees have been working something else like willow herb or clover even it, the color and the texture of the honey is totally different so it, it, sometimes it's experience and uh, other times it's backed up with the uh, analysis have you got a favorite out of the pure honeys you produce um i i like strong honeys you know i like ivy honey it's a very strong malty honey i like buckwheat that's very similar that's that's a really dark malty honey um but for overall flavor the bell heather is is probably the best that is that is a really strong floral honey it's almost it's almost almond sort of marzipan sort of flavor to it it's it's there's not really a honey like that it's yeah very special the bell heather what do you enjoy most about beekeeping? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I guess it changes. It changes all the time. Years ago, I always used to enjoy sort of a steady, steady work day, going through the hives and stopping and having 
some pack up and just watching the bees work. But these days I don't tend to get enough time to just relax and do that anymore. So um, I, oddly enough, the last few years I've really enjoyed getting into um, sort of data collection and uh, stats and statistics of what my bees have been doing, what, what honey they've produced on each site and how, how swarmy certain um, queens have been and things like that. And, I, yeah, I quite enjoy sort of inputting all that data at the end of the season and, and seeing how everything's gone in a way and, and breaking it all down to sort of exact uh, stats and figures. It's, yeah, it's sad, but I've been enjoying it. <laughs> There's so much you can do to influence that, though, seeing which mm. mani manipulations have worked more effectively than others and looking at the data to, to build that into the next season, I suppose. Absolutely, yeah. It's um, it, yeah, it does inform what I do the following season sometimes, and even I've even given up certain sites because trends have shown that it, they've not been good sites over sort of three or four years. Which yeah, it's um, yeah, it's been quite valuable, um, but it's also been quite relaxing just at a computer putting in, in this information at the end of the season. Turning the question on its head, what do you dislike most about beekeeping? Um. The first thing that comes to mind is the driving. We, we, because of how much we're moving the bees, we do we do an awful lot of driving. So most years it's sort of fifteen thousand miles over six eight months. So it's I always seem to be on the road, which yeah um, I used to enjoy, but not so much these days. Um, but uh, I guess I also the winter months I really struggle with. You know I think a lot of farmers and other beekeepers, especially when when everything we do is based around the summer and, and warm temperatures and fields of flowering crops and everything being alive and, and everything being active. And then, you know, the, the winter hits and it's like the exact opposite. It's cold and wet and the fields are brown and there's nothing growing. And it, it, it yeah, it can be quite depressing. I find in winter, I, I find it depressing at least personally. Um, as much as I look forward to, finishing the season a few weeks into winter I just can't wait to start again <laughs> yeah it can get pretty bleak and when you know it's coming towards an end and you're going for a walk and you're just trying to see those first signs of spring you're looking for the buds you're looking to see what's going to come into flower it's uh, that's what gets me excited as well absolutely yeah the, the first signs of spring you know the willows coming out the hazels things like that it's yeah it gets you excited even though even though it's probably months off when you start seeing those signs, it, it gets you excited early on, doesn't it? What's been your best experience or your funniest story? Well, that is a real, that is a good question. Um, best experience, funniest story. Um, I don't, it's not necessarily, it is funny, but it's also a bit sad. When I was inspecting, um, I got a call out from a beekeeper one year and they were very concerned that, their colony wasn't building up and they were in an area where um, we'd actually found some European fowl brood. So, you know, they, they were right to give us a call. And um, I went out and had a look at this colony and I walked down to the bottom of the garden and I opened up this it was brand new, it was a lovely immaculate hive. And I opened it up and it was just all foundation, um, all brand new, but all foundation. And then in the, in the middle of the foundation was... Uh, was a queen cage with a dead queen and some attendants in it. And um, this beekeeper had just bought a queen thinking that 
that's all they needed to start a colony. <laughs> and yeah, it's um, it makes me chuckle, but it's also a bit worrying. <laughs> Perhaps not not quite ready to be a beekeeper then. <laughs> no, but it, it, in a way, it's, it, it sort of showed me that you know if if you just reading things online and if you, you're just reading books without any interaction with other beekeepers actually some some things you know you can get quite easily misled if you don't understand you know um beekeeping if you're very new at it and uh, this person had obviously read somewhere about binding queens to start up a, a fresh colony you know via splitting or you know and yeah it makes you realize actually how um uh, if you're inexperienced how uh, how misleading things can be if you're just reading <laughs> I'm just still trying to think about that. I probably had a good few scout bees <laughs> if, if it was swarm season, a few people popping in, popping in to say hello. But yeah, you're, you're not going to catch a swarm because obviously there's already a queen there. If if, if she wasn't there, and some scout yeah. bees might have thought, you know what, let's move in and bring the rest of yeah. the half the colony with us. But even yeah, should yeah, they'd have maybe been better with just yeah a bit of lemongrass in the hive and and something like that. But yeah, crazy. But. All in, how was the 2020 season for you, Paul? 2020, uh, that seems like forever ago now. Um, it, it was a, it was probably the best season we've had, I think. Um, best overall crop uh, and some of the best averages per colony we had. Um, the the spring beans yielded incredibly well, um, which, uh, as I mentioned earlier, most of our hives, once they come back from... Uh, top fruit pollination in Kent they're coming back to sort of the end of end of the oilseed rape and onto either winter beans or spring beans and um, last year uh, there was no winter beans in because we had a very wet winter the year before and the farmers couldn't get them drilled so nearly every farmer around us just put in spring beans and it was one of those blue moon years for us where the spring beans actually just yielded and yielded and yielded so it, it, it really gave us a bumper crop um, but on the downside, the, the the heather totally failed for us up in North Yorkshire. It had been decimated by heather beetle and, and it was an absolute write-off. We even had bees starving up there. So, um, yeah, most years the, the, there's an upside and a downside to every season. And, and last year the downside was the heather and the upside was the spring beans. Given the conversation we've had so far, it sounds like your season is well underway. But what are your plans for the rest of the season? Obviously... Going back to my notes, the cherries were in April, the apples were mid-April, we're, we're now into May. So are they down on the blueberries and then they're, some of the oilseed rape? They're, they're down there, yeah, they're down on pollination, but this, this season's been really behind. We're, we're at least a fortnight behind. Um, uh, I, I only just got the bees to the apples uh, last week. And, and usually I'm starting to think about bringing them home this time of year. So it's it's really behind this year. Um, everything's sort of held up here. It's sort of in check. You know, it's been that cold and dry up until this last week. We've had a bit of rain finally, but it, they're just, they're, everything's behind. You know, we've still got blackthorn in flower. Um, hawthorn's starting to flower as well. And it's everything's, if the weather comes good in a week or two's time, I think everything's going to be condensed and everything's just going to explode all in this one sort of, yeah, one week, maybe at the end of May. But no, we're really behind this year. Um, maybe next week um, the, the bees on the cherries will be coming home. But again, if everything's 
slow down there. They may the, the growers may want them a bit longer. They may want the bees a bit longer. So it's really uncertain spring. Really strange spring. I sit here from this one room, and we've got a mature apple tree straight outside the garden. That's definitely two weeks late in flowering. Mm -hmm. It's out now, but it was looking at the pictures from last year. Yeah, it's a good two weeks after when it was then. Yeah, very strange. Uh, I think everything will catch up if, if the weather breaks and we start getting some good temperatures. We, we've had the rain now, which is what we were desperate for. So um, there's still plenty of time. It's still early. <laughs> On your social media, it looks as though there's a new facility which is currently getting uh, finished off. Can you tell us a bit more about that and the use for that this season? So, yeah, that we, we, I had a bespoke... Um, shed built it's not an industrial shed it's quite big 20 meters by 20 meters had that built last year and that's that's been a dream for a long time really um because my dad my dad was a bee farm for 40 years and he made do with this tiny little sort of outhouse it was sort of three meters wide by four meters long and you know he ran 400 colonies at one point and it was all managed out of this tiny little building you know, I can remember our garden being covered in barrels of honey in the summer because there was just no space. And I think that really sort of, when I started doing it for myself, it was like the one thing I always wanted to grow out of. I wanted enough space to just not be working on top of myself all the time. You know, I wanted everything sort of, you know, a bespoke room for woodwork and a bespoke room for extraction and storage and, and jarring honey and things like that. So we're nearly there now with that um the sheds up and uh over winter i've built the internal rooms but i just just run out of time i could have done with another month over winter so i've still got i've still got the floors i've still got the resin floors to put down in these rooms we've still got the electrics and the plumbing to do so unfortunately it's not going to be up and running this season uh, <laughs> which is is quite gutting um but it's maybe for the best, actually, because it gives me another winter to get it all set up and all perfect, ready for next year. And I feel like if I'd nearly got it ready for this season, I'd have rushed it and probably not done things quite right. So it's, it's maybe been a blessing, actually. So Yeah, you want to make the most of that investment, don't you, and do it right. One thing, when is a shed not a shed? 20 metres by 20 metres? <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it is a shed. I call it shed, but I don't I don't know what the next level up from shed is. Um, what would you call it? An industrial building, I guess? I don't know. It's Warehouse? Yeah. Warehouse, yeah. <laughs> the B warehouse, yeah. Um, I don't know. I still call it a shed, but that a shed could mean in the garden, which is what I made do with for a long time. I, you know, you know, I was producing 10 ton of honey out of my garden shed not five years ago so it's yeah we, it's, it's amazing what we manage with sometimes and I think it's going to be the other way now I'm, I'm going to have enough space that I don't know what to do with it soon so yeah but the the one thing I am looking into when I've got this bespoke space I'm looking into increasing my jar sales a bit more because at the minute it's only a 10-15 percent of what we do and uh, I think there's there's certainly a lot of room in that in that market i think for for um for local honeys and and honeys direct from the beekeeper and that's yeah that's something i'm going to look at doing i think increasing what we do with our jars rather than just putting it all in barrels and someone else making all the money on us if you know what i mean so um yeah 
So when that's up and running, a bit more, bit more jars, I think. Especially if your honey goes off for further processing and they're doing something to the product versus having it cold extracted, pure product straight into the jar, the best quality it could ever be. Yeah, I mean, I've been lucky in that I've always had a good, reliable bulk buyer. Yeah, you know, they, they've, they've really looked after me over the last 12 years. Um, and, and actually, it, they don't mess with honey that much. You know, they, they warm, warm, warm the honey up in the barrels, uh, filter it, and then, you know, warm the jars up again a little bit after they've, they've bottled it. But it's not, it's not what you'd call, you'd call cooked or, or damaged. It's, it's still a lovely end product. But it, it's always grieved me a little bit letting some of these really unique honeys go at a bulk price, you know, um, when actually I could be putting them in the jar, getting a little bit more money for them and, you know, seeing the end result with a label on an end product on a shelf, you know, it's, it's, it's something else I've enjoyed actually when we've done a few markets and Christmas events and things like that, having the interaction with the customer who can taste the honey on the stall and, yeah, that that's been quite a nice thing. Seeing, yeah, seeing the end product, seeing people enjoy it, which is something I've not had for a long time selling in barrels and buckets. So, definitely more so now with people wanting to know where products coming from and its origins and understanding, you know, the whole process, which you miss out on. I know if it's not being sold directly by the beekeeper, I feel it, it, that side of the market's really grown. I think in the last even maybe five years, you know, when I first started. There wasn't many people, there wasn't even really many modern labels. You know, I remember 12 years ago looking and it was all, um, you, you'll, you'll know what I mean. There's a label that's like an old, it's either a cottage with a beehive sort of a skep or a WBC hive in these old style labels. Everyone was using those and there was no real modern design for honey 12 years ago even. There was a few, but. And, and it was just blossom, runny honey, or it was a set honey. And I feel like in at least the last 10 years, things have really changed and people are going down different avenues. Um, they're really selling the, the benefits of local honeys and, and buying from um, direct from beekeepers and, um, and what makes certain honey special. I think that's that, that side of it's really exploded recently and, uh, even during COVID, it, people must just be focusing on buying locally produced products or maybe there's been something with health benefits from money, I don't know. But things have really gone crazy during COVID for, for, for local sales. Um, and other colleagues that I speak to, it's been the same with them. So it's, yeah, it's, it's yeah, there's a lot of potential in that, that side of things, I think. Yeah, provenance is absolutely huge understanding food miles and where food comes from i think i said on a different episode that we shifted our buying pattern for egg to a local free range mm -hmm. egg farmer because when the restaurants all shut up shop obviously they had a whole surplus but for me i like the fact that these eggs are coming from a chicken farm within five ten miles of, of where i live and actually supporting a local business for that top quality product versus getting it in one of the big retailers where they're they're taking a margin from it i'd much rather those who are putting in all the hard graft looking after these animals and, and the husbandry get rewarded for for the true value of the product that they're bringing to market 
Absolutely, yeah. In an, in an ideal world, we'd, we'd buy everything direct from the people that produce it, I think, if it was viable. But, um, yeah, yeah that's, the, that's, that's maybe the issue with supermarkets, isn't it? I think they're always, always driving down the price and trying to get things as cheap as they can so they can make as much as they can. Um, and it just makes it harder for the producers, really, I think. so. As a bee inspector, you must have seen and experienced a lot of things. So if you were to impart some of that wisdom and some of the things that you'd seen, what would be your nuggets of advice for people? Nuggets of advice? Um, I think the sensible thing is to, to take time before you get your beats, you know, read some books, join a local club, get hands-on with someone else that's got bees or... Do as much as you can before you get that hive because, yeah, I've seen some really horrible things where, where bees have been, well, I get you would nearly say abused because people don't understand what they're doing. They've just jumped in with both feet, and which is great. You can't beat people being eager and wanting to get into it, but it often leads to um, problems and it costs the bees, you know, um, most of the time your first year things are going to go wrong anyway where regardless of how prepared you are um and uh, it takes a few years to get into it so you've got to expect that things are going to go wrong anyway and and it'll take a few years um i would always try and say stick to one type of hive and super and and stick to one type of equipment um there's nothing worse than people that have got a national a langstroth a commercial you know a top bar they've got a mixture of everything and it just it, it leads to chaos i think when when things start to go wrong and the bees are getting swarmy and you've got honey to take off it i've seen some real uh, yeah, some real messes when people have just not got enough of one type of equipment but they've got all this stored like sort of langstroth equipment but they've not got bees in the langstroth hives and yeah, so try and stick to one variety of hive. I think that, that simplifies everything. Um, so with people that are building up, um, because I feel like there's this thing where people think more hives mean better beekeeper, and it, it's really not the case. You just tend to spread yourself more thin and essentially lose control of the situation sometimes. You're much better focusing in on a smaller number of hives and maximising the output of those hives. Um yeah, so some of the best beekeepers and bee farmers I know are the ones that have have sort of, yeah, totally maximised what they're getting out of an individual colony rather than just building up and up and up and, and playing a numbers game. Uh, you just, yeah, you just lose control of it. We've mentioned a number of different types of honey. Where and when will people be able to get their hands on your honey? Uh, you can get most of the varieties on our website. Um if you're in the Lincoln area or Lincolnshire area, um, we supply quite a few shops. And once things are back up and running, we'll hopefully be doing some events maybe over Christmas um, around Lincoln. Um, but yeah, if, you, if you're not in Lincolnshire, uh, our website's probably the best bet. One of the other items I saw that you had harvested, pollen. Is that <laughs> something you frequently harvest or was that a one-off? No, that, that's 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 a new thing we started a couple of years ago, and actually, it's yeah, it's it's becoming quite a good seller. That um, uh, a few years ago, you know, I noticed that there wasn't really any British produced pollen available. Um, 
usually if you see it anywhere, it's Spanish pollen or European pollen, something like that. It's, it's always imported. And I could not find anyone that had produced British pollen. And much like the honey, much like, you know, being able to buy something locally or even produced in Britain, you know, um, it, it started selling, you know, and we do these little packs of pollen and, and people buy it. They put it on their cereals, they put it on their fruit and things like that and yogurts. Um, I've even had some people buying it in bulk for to feed their racehorses, um, believe it or not. And yeah, this this it's becoming quite an interesting avenue that I might try and expand on. You know, um, yeah, pollen is yeah, it's it's becoming quite popular. And when when you look at why it's you know it's very high protein and and totally natural. So it's yeah, you you can see the benefits really. Do you have to process that? Do you have to dry it out? Yeah, it's dry, dried and filtered. Um, um, yeah, dried and filtered. You can freeze it raw if you don't want to dry it. You can freeze it. Um, but obviously, if, if you're putting it in a bag or putting it in a jar or something to sell on to a person, it, it needs to be dried, really. If, if you're freezing it, that's maybe for use um, within making pollen patties, let's say for your own bees, or if you wanted to sell it to someone that wanted to feed a racehorse, you could you could sell it to them frozen rather than drying it. But uh, but yeah, we're processing it and filtering it. And uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's much like the honey. Each pollen is has a different taste. Um, you know, like hawthorn honey is very bitter and not quite quite nice, but oilseed rape honey is quite sweet and nutty. And yeah, it's, it's another avenue that's, I didn't realize, you know, every pollen was different and different taste. And yeah, it's, it's quite an interesting avenue I've been going down. And if someone wanted to try doing that domestically, is that just low and slow in the oven? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, um, uh, I can't remember the exact temperatures, but uh, you need a fan assisted, well, we've got a bespoke pollen dryer, but uh, it's as much about getting airflow through as it is just drying it. So as we come to wrap up another episode of the Paddock Bees podcast, we want to know about your jobs for the week. Uh, my jobs this week um, probably involve um, my shed. Um, I've got some internal doors to fit because this week it's very wet and uh, miserable outside. So I'm not doing a lot with the bees. So it's, it's finding work to do, really. Um, and then maybe next week bringing the bees back from Kent. So we'll have to wait and see. And when you bring the bees back, are you taking a harvest off them straight away and extracting? Uh, some years we do when they've, when they've got a good crop. Um, we, some years we do, but this year I, I doubt it. Um, They'll the probably need everything they've got in the supers with, with the way the weather is at the minute. So um, it'll stay on them until we know the weather's sorted itself out and there's some more honey coming in, I think. Um, yeah, it's yeah, it's a very difficult season so far. Um that's if there's any honey on them. <laughs> Paul, thank you so much for joining me. I just want to say if people want to find out more information about Paul and, and the business, then do head over to uh, Instagram and have a look at, uh, is it Happy Day? You can find us at Happy Day, yeah. Uh, A-P-I-D-A-E, Happy Day Honey. And www.appyday.co.uk if you want to go and buy that honey. Paul, thank you so much for coming on this evening. I've really enjoyed chatting with you. There's so much to your business, so much exciting stuff going on with the warehouse shed, the pollen, <laughs> the moving the bees, 
it sounds like it's go, go, go. We all hope the weather picks up and, and the bees start doing what, what we know they could be doing and bringing in a good amount of nectar and getting the honey on. So uh, best of luck for the rest of the season. Thank you again. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Hi everyone, thanks for taking the time to join me today for the Paddock Bees podcast. I really hope you found it useful. I'd love for you to come back and give me some feedback. So head over to Instagram and send me a direct message or email me on paddockbees at gmail.com. I want to hear from you. I want to know what you want to hear about. So please don't hesitate to give me your thoughts. Once again, thanks for joining. See you next time. Bye.